Hey, good morning, church. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, you, may, you may or may not know this about me, but I'm not a very good gardener. Uh, but I know a few people who are, and, and so we're, we're getting on that season where some might be putting seeds into little cups in your basement and having the grow light on and things like that. And, and so I've learned that, that a plant needs the right size of pot, uh, it needs the right soil, it needs the right amount of sunlight, and of course it needs the right amount of water. And so what happens when a plant gets, gets too little or too much of any of these? Well, it might die, right? Well, Psalm 1 gives us a picture of a righteous man, biblically speaking. It it describes him like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In Matthew 13, Jesus shares the parable of the sower, Jesus shared about the seed that fell along the path, rocky ground, and among thorns. And and Jesus says, and and since they had no root, the seeds didn't grow. So it's about roots. That makes sense, right? It's about roots. A, A plant, whether a flower or a tree, needs roots to grow. And the Bible teaches us, so do you. You and I need roots to grow. This week, as we continue learning about living as servant leaders in God's kingdom, we're going to talk about how the gospel is not only the good news of our eternity with God, which it is, but the gospel is also our root system to grow up into Christ. And so let's go ahead and look at how Gospel rootedness shapes the lives of those of us who are Christ followers. We're going to look at uh, several different scripture texts. We're going to use the Bible as our text today and look at different places that the Bible talks about this and, and leads us in this direction. And so the foundation of our gospel rootedness is, of course, the gospel. Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You can turn there if you'd like. We'll also have this on the screen. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so verses 1 through 3, they tell us, That that's all of us. That's every single one of us before Christ and his grace is applied to our lives. But then we get to verse 4 and it says, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, that's God's unconditional love, it's a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then we're going to, I'll read verse 10 to you, but this is really what we're talking about today, uh, the, the application of verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so once, once we have, have transitioned from deadness to life because of the grace of Jesus Christ, a gift to us, what does it mean to live out that grace of God in our lives? What does it mean to become the workmanship of God, created in Christ for good works? See, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the message that although we were once dead in our sin, Jesus Christ, he made us alive together in him. He raised us up. He seated us with him. And, and so it's through faith in Jesus that he applies his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection power to our lives with, by, by declaring us justified. He declares us justified. And what God says is true. And so when received, this is the gift part, when received, we open our hands and we receive it, the gospel unites us to Jesus Christ. We enter an internal union with Jesus. And so by grace, the gospel frees us from the dominion of sin and darkness. We're set free. By, by grace, the gospel equips us to live by the Spirit, to, to renounce and repent of sin, to, to follow and imitate Christ, to, to live a life of love which God first gave us. This is the good work that God desires to produce in us, each and every one of us, that we become his workmanship, his handiwork, his beautiful creation, the image-bearing creation of Jesus Christ in this world, that we bear that image. A, a pastor named Ray Ortland he calls this gospel culture. It, it's our new pattern of life that we now live in Christ as we're led by the Spirit. And it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, a theological term for this would be sanctification. That we, more and more in our lives, bear the image of Jesus. And so the gospel changes everything about our lives. It, it changes the way we think and the way we live in marriage. It, it changes our capability as parents. It alters the way we approach our friendships and the way we think about and use money in our lives. It's all different now. When, when a person's united to Christ through the gospel, life is, a, life is never again as it once was. That's reality. The, the old is gone, the new has come. The gospel is the message of God's love, his unfailing love in our lives. First John 4, 9 and 10 say this about God's love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That means it's applied to us in our lives that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, to propitiate means actually to satisfy God's wrath toward our sin. We all deserve God's wrath for our sin. That's what we deserve for our sin. We deserve death. The Bible tells us that. 
But Jesus is the propitiation, the mercy seat that protects us. This means that God justifies us by faith because he loves us. He chooses to love us so, so much. This is the love that God revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. And so in some ways, it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter what you've left undone. All you need to do is to receive the gift of the gospel. And when, as you receive the gift of the gospel, the Spirit will lead you and empower you to repent by, by turning your back on sin while actually turning forward toward Christ and treasuring Him. And so church, know for certain that God loves you. If you're in Christ, God loves you. And, and, and see, when we begin to realize and recognize God's love for us in this way, it actually does something to us. It, it begins to change us. Because someone, someone who's been justified by Christ is, and is rooted in the gospel, what, what happens is we receive a new identity and purpose. If you've been around here, we've talked about this before. This is the idea of adoption into God's family. When, when a child is adopted into a family... It's, it's usually because the child is in some sort of danger or brokenness. There, there's something wrong in that nuclear family. And so it could be the child's parents didn't, didn't have the means to provide for the child. It, it could be that the parents, they were struggling with some sort of addiction and they weren't able to care for the child in the way the child needed it. It could be that the parents abandoned the child. There's a variety of possibilities. But, but usually when a child's adopted into a new family, there's a, sense of, there's a sense of renewed security and freedom and, and certainty and an overall better life. And, and, and here's the truth, guys. This is also true for those who have been adopted into the family of God through Jesus. That's what happens. Before Christ, we were caught up in brokenness and sin. And, and sometimes, even after Christ, we're, we're, we still, we turn back to the old ways. But before Christ, that defined us. We were very insecure people. And so what did we do? We, we sought security in whatever way we thought we could. We sought security in ourselves. And so we'd try to cover our insecurities with all sorts of things. Things like comparisons with other people. Things like seeking personal success. We try to hide our insecurities from others, which is shame. Or, or we place our insecurities on others, which is blame. But, but now, for those who are united to Christ, we walk rooted in the gospel. We find our lasting security in Jesus. Be, before Christ, we, we'd spiral into unending cycles of guilt for our sin, the, the Bible calls this condemnation. We, we could not escape it. It, it, was a, it was a pathway to death. Our sin and judgment was ever before us. But now as we walk rooted in the gospel, we live in the freedom from sin, which the propitiation of Christ provides for us as we embrace that through faith. That, that's what it means to be justified before God. 
Now, let, let's be really clear. Being justified doesn't mean we go on sinning. We don't, it's not a license to keep on sinning more because God's just going to forgive us in the end. We can do whatever we want. Like, that's not the gospel taking root in your life. In fact, that's immature faith or not faith at all. Paul says, no, we don't go on sinning. Rather, we live without the dark cloud of condemnation over our heads anymore. Romans 8.1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are not enslaved to the law anymore if you're in Christ. Now, now before Christ, we'd, we'd live out of our own selfishness. We would act, we would be people who would act self-righteously, thinking we're better than we actually are, and, and that we could justify ourselves. And so that's what we tried to do. We'd act in self-preservation, thinking our worth is in ourselves, and that we could foster our own security. We, we'd act in deep self-focus, thinking that our gain comes from within somewhere and that we could actually earn all the good that God has for us. But now in Christ, we know that's not true. Now in Christ, as we walk rooted in the gospel, we live a life of repentance, turning to Jesus, following Jesus, humbly walking in faith with Christ. Before Christ, we'd respond with vengeance when others would sin against us. Maybe you can think of that in your own life. Somebody would wrong you and you'd want to wreak havoc on them. You'd want them to pay. I mean, they deserve it. But, but now as we walk rooted in the gospel, what do we do? We, we forgive others when they sin against us. Because that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. Be, before Christ, we would be people who would doubt or lead with skepticism toward others. That, that would define us. But now as we walk rooted in the gospel, we actually embrace faith in God. And, and we trust our brothers and sisters in Christ, assuming the best of them before leading with skepticism. This is what a gospel-rooted person does. The, the gospel of Christ adopts us into God's family, and now we have a new identity and purpose for our lives. But, but what happens with this new identity and purpose in our lives? What happens? What happens? Well, the Spirit sanctifies us. When, when we know that we're immensely loved by God through the gospel... What happens is we put on, we begin to wear that new identity and purpose in our lives. And as we do, the Spirit sanctifies us in several ways. And so I want to talk about a few of those ways today. One way is, is humble honesty. And so we, we've talked about go the gospel being the foundation. We've talked about it, that new identity and purpose. And now we have humble honesty. And so once the gospel has taken root in our lives, our past insecurities, they're actually being uprooted. Like a weed. Do, do you remember? Do you remember uh, what David wrote in Psalm 51? David wrote this, this beautiful psalm 
hard psalm to read, heavy psalm. It's a detailed, dramatic confession of his sin. He confesses to God how he's caused offense. Have you ever read Psalm 51 and just wondered, how in the world could David do that? I mean, he wrote it down for other people to see, and now it's included in all of our Bibles, and from generation to generation, we're just seeing his real vulnerable life before our eyes, and it would be so easy to look down on him and say, look at him, he's not as good as me. But that's not what the gospel does, is it? Here's what I think happened for David, and here's what I think can happen in our lives as well, that our ability to to be vulnerable to, to be humble and honest about weakness and sin is actually rooted, deeply rooted in our acceptance of God's perfect love for us. Does that make sense? And so the question you need to ask yourself is, do you really truly find security in God's love, the gospel? Where are you seeking security? Is it in God's love, the gospel, or is it in something else? See, if you don't find your security in God's love, you're you're likely to resort and respond and shame and blame more regularly in your life. But if you are rooted in God's love, the gospel, you'll take a humbly honest posture about your sin. You'll be vulnerable about it. You'll be open about it. You'll be humble about it because you're not threatened by it anymore because you're set free from the law of sin and death. I was visiting a a life group recently, going around to the different groups to to get to know the people and to to check out how the groups are going. And I I went to this particular group and I was just so encouraged about how humble and honest everyone in the group was. Actually, they've only been meeting for a few months, and, and I was just blown away about the transparency that was in the group. Each person shared so openly, vulnerably about their shortcomings, their struggles, their doubts, their sins. And then after sharing, we, we didn't, they didn't just share, but we prayed. We, we took those things to God, trusting that God is going to handle it. Guys, it was absolutely phenomenal. These people in this life group, they found their security in the gospel. That's the only explanation for it. See, see, often to admit the reality of our spiritual immaturity or sin, it's incredibly humbling. That's why we don't do it. I mean, it can feel embarrassing. It really can. The the truth is, we are fragile, fragile people. Every one of us is broken in some way or we're ready to break. We can't escape the fragility of our our emotional and spiritual lives. However, by the gospel, Jesus heals, he strengthens, and he restores us. And so once we embrace this posture of humble honesty, the The Spirit continues to sanctify us. The Spirit continues to work in our lives and brings us to a place, a posture in our hearts where we have grace and honor. This is a posture of heart that we take. And and it starts by realizing that in Christ, in union with Christ, we are no longer condemned. But we're actually received and accepted by the grace of God as we are. 
And, and when we know that we're loved and accepted by God, when that becomes more certain and foundation, foundational in our lives, when it dries like concrete, so, so much that, that we can be humbly honest about our sin toward God and toward, toward others, when, when that happens in our lives, we can embrace grace and honor, a posture of heart in our lives. Let me, let me give you a picture of this out of Romans chapter 12. We'll have this on the screen. Paul writes to the Romans and he talks about living a whole life of worship, be a living sacrifice to the Lord. And then he gives us this picture in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is written in such a way that it's, it's toward people who have been wronged, people who have been sinned against, people who have been hurt. And there's so much we could talk about and unpack here. We could, we could do several weeks of teaching on this passage alone. But ultimately, what I think is this passage shows us that our primary responsibility as Christ followers, our primary responsibility as Christ followers, is, is not to intentionally walk around looking for and pointing out sin in other people. That's not our primary responsibility. Rather, God loves us so that we can go and love others. And so, yes, there is a time and a place to lovingly and gently help someone recognize their sin so that we can, so, so that the Spirit would turn them to Christ, so, so that we can point them to Jesus, because Jesus is their hope. But, but our primary focus isn't to, to, like, seek out sin in other people so that we can point our finger at them and say, look at you. That's not our primary focus with walking with Jesus. And, and so if it is, if it becomes our primary focus, we easily lose track of the Jesus way. We, we easily miss the log in our own eye, and we can accidentally emphasize condemnation instead of the grace of God. You see, Scripture says that when someone wrongs you, let your love be genuine. That's what the text says. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be patient with one another, contribute to the needs of others and seek to show hospitality. When someone wrongs you, bless and do not curse. 
Make every effort to live in peace with others. That's not just one conversation, that's many conversations. And, and, and trust God with those who do evil against you. And then we get to verse 20, and I want, I want to spend just a moment here because this can be confusing. It says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And often people think that the Bible is actually telling us like, okay, take this passive-aggressive approach toward those who hurt you now. Like, some, some, like, that's how we read it in English. But here's what this actually means. Years and years ago, when, when a fire needed to be stoked, and, and a family was out of their hot coals. So, sometimes a neighbor would bring over a few hot coals to help their fa- the other family get their fire going again. It was, it was to help them. It was to give them something they needed. And so help, heaping burning coals on his head is a phrase that connotes strong spiritual encouragement. It, it's actually offering something vital that is act- that's lacking with somebody else. It's about equipping others with a spurring on kind of encouragement. And, and so don't knock down those who hurt you. Encourage them in Christ. Point them to Jesus. That's what they need. They need a grand and glorious vision for who God is, that they'd be humbled by the Spirit in their lives to repent and to walk and follow Jesus. And so when we're rooted in the gospel, when we're deeply rooted and those roots are foundational in our lives, what do we do as God's people? Well, we start to live a life that extends grace and honor toward others as Jesus has done for us. And once we begin to live out that posture in our hearts, the Spirit does a work in us to produce a repentance and forgiveness in our lives. It's number five. Repentance and forgiveness, it actually uproots selfishness, bitterness, with which we lived before, we w- lived with that before Christ. And, and so if you're in Christ, that's no longer who you are. It, your life isn't about you. Your life isn't about being bitter toward others because you're trying to find value in, in yourself and justify yourself. In fact, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 21, provides instruction for how Christ followers are to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters in Christ who may be walking down a path of sin. And the reason we confront is because we love them, and we don't want them to walk down a path towards spiritual darkness and damnation. And so having a heart posture of grace and honor is so vital when trying to help someone recognize sin in their life. If we do it out of I'm better than you kind of attitude, it never works. It's never healthy. It's never helpful. And so we must ultimately remember that it's the Spirit's job to convict. It's not ours. And, and that God is sovereign over so much that we can trust him to do it. Right? He doesn't need Mike to do that for somebody. We can trust God to do it. Yet as gospel-rooted people, when we're confronted by our own sin from someone else, we repent. 
That's how we respond. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the gospel produces in our lives. And we don't only repent in those times when someone calls us out. Feel like we can hide it or something. We repent as the Holy Spirit reveals sin in our lives. Repentance involves a hard attitude, a confession, and a turning from sin to, to, to walk again in step with Jesus. And, and think about this. Repentance is actually a privilege of the gospel that we receive by grace. Sometimes we think it's just that thing that we needed to do. It's actually a privilege we receive by the grace of God. Now, now forgiveness is absorbing the cost when you've been wronged. When, when you're walking through that, when you've been wronged in your life, we, we don't want to feel that, we don't want to think that. But that's what forgiveness is. It's absorbing the cost. It's, it's foregoing personal vengeance. It's committing not to bring up that past sin again. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus is not asking us to do something that he hasn't already done for us. And it's because he's already done it that we can do it. See, true forgiveness occurs only after you've truly encountered Jesus' forgiveness in your life. Repentance and forgiveness doesn't genuinely happen in our lives without first being rooted in the gospel. In fact, I don't believe it can. And this is because the gospel produces confidence in God's love for us. The gospel frees us to be humbly honest about our sin in our own lives. The gospel empowers us to be people who extend grace and honor toward others around us even when they hurt us. And, and it's with a gospel-rooted heart posture of grace and honor that, that true repentance and forgiveness actually happens in our lives. And it's more than just words we say. I, I think about when my boys were, were little, they'd, they'd get into arguments. You, you could probably imagine, if you've had kids, you, you know how that is. One, one would take a toy of another, the other would hit the brother who took his toy, and it would just get out of control, and someone would eventually come crying to dad, I'd be in the other room, and it, it, it was kind of hard to know, like, how do, you, how do I manage this? I wasn't even there to see what happened in the other room. But I would often say something like, boys, do, how does God want us to handle this situation? And so it would quickly happen. One boy would apologize to the other. The other boy would say, I'm sorry. And then they'd both look at me. Dad, can we go back and play? I'd say, guys, let's just slow down for a minute. Jesus died for your sin. And I began to walk them through. This is part of being having a dad who's a pastor, walk them through the gospel, talking with them about repentance and forgiveness, and what Jesus did. I think it drove them a bit nuts at times, but here's the reality. It takes time and energy to discuss how the gospel applies to our sin and hurts in our lives. It takes time. And so we, we have to do it for, for the roots because if we don't do it, we actually run the risk of just kind of going through these motions. And you guys know what I mean. Going through the motions of repentance and forgiveness. Like we know the right answer. 
It looks like it's real on the surface, but it really isn't. It's not lasting. And, and that kind of superficial repentance and forgiveness is actually, it's fleeting, and it's eventually going to crumble. And the only way for repentance and forgiveness to take root in our lives is by the power of the gospel. And so once we begin to embrace a lifestyle of true, lasting repentance and forgiveness, here, here's the final one. We become a people of faith and trust. Faith and trust. Now, like I said earlier, before Christ and our old sinful patterns of living, we were people of doubt and skepticism. That, 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 that's no longer the case for those of us who are in Christ. Now we're people who are defined by faith and trust. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so faith is trusting that which we don't see. Our faith is in God. We, we have faith in God because we have confidence in God's word. We have confidence that God is both able and faithful. And so now if you're, you're united to Christ through the gospel, we're, we're becoming a people who, who live more and more often assuming the best of one another. By, by trusting them. Instead of leading with skepticism. This is what gospel roots do in a person's life. Think about it. What happens, real practically, what happens when your expectations aren't met by someone else, whatever the situation? Well, it forms a trust gap. There's a gap in trust. I've heard another pastor teach about trust and trustworthiness, and he says when, when there are unexplainable gaps between what we expect people to do and, and what they actually do, there's a trust gap. We, and, and, and so for those of us who are in Christ, we don't just make whatever assumptions we feel like making. That's our old self. Instead, we must make three commitments in order to choose to trust. And we'll have these on the screen. Choosing to trust. Here's the commitments. When there is a gap between what I expect and what I experience, I, I will fill it with trust. If I'm going too fast, these are in your, in your bulletin too. When, when I observe someone filling a gap with suspicion, right, that happens sometimes, I will come to the other person's defense. And third, if, I, if what I experience begins to erode my trust, I'll come directly to you about it. I'll go to the person, right? That's what the Bible even teaches. We, we see that with sin in Matthew 18. And so this is how we choose to trust when there's an unexplainable gap in trust. And gaps in trust happen because we all have these expectations in our lives at different ways, different times. And we're interacting with all sorts of different people. And we're not able to communicate about everything. And, and trust me, even in a marriage, you, you don't. Like you don't understand the other person's perspective all the time. But, but in addition to choosing to trust, we must also choose to walk in a way that's trustworthy. And so being trustworthy isn't the same as being flawless, but it does involve three commitments, and here they are, choosing to be trustworthy. I commit to do what I say I will do, and when I don't, because sometimes that happens, I'll tell you. Number two, I commit to not overpromise and underdeliver, but if it looks like that's where things are headed, 
I'll tell you. And, and if you confront me about the gaps I've created, I'll tell you the truth. Guys, if we make those three commitments, each and every one of us, we're going to walk as trustworthy people. But, but here's the deal. Even if we make these commitments, choosing to trust, choosing to be trustworthy, we need the gospel to empower us to trust. It, it's only after we know that God will always care for us that we'll put ourselves out there to trust others. Why don't we trust others? What's well, usually, it comes back to the root that we want to be cared for. We want to be cared for well. And so what, what, what about when you've been hurt? Not, not just once, but time and time and time again. What about when you've been hurt? Well, a couple thoughts. One, one would be boundaries, and the others would be reconciliation. Let's talk about this. For, first of all, we, we need, each and every one of us, we need healthy and appropriate boundaries in our lives with other people in our relationships. No, no matter what the relationship is, even in a marriage, we need those kind of boundaries. They're different in a marriage than they would be with a friend or a stranger. But, but when we've been hurt over and over and over, it may be time to add some additional, healthy, God-honoring boundaries. Now, how do we determine those boundaries? Well, the best way to determine them is actually to go to Scripture. And after going to Scripture, you may need to go to, to a pastor or an elder or a counselor to seek some guidance and help with what those boundaries should be, someone who can understand the situation that you're in, because every situation is unique. And, and the risk is having wrong boundaries, whether too loose or too tight, they can easily produce more pain in our relationships. And so we want to be wise as we have boundaries in our lives. But, but when we draw the right boundaries in our lives, we actually become more and more healthy. And we encourage others by having those boundaries to become healthy as well. So that's boundaries. We could talk a long time about that, but... The second thought about when you've been hurt time and time again is reconciliation. This is a, a biblical idea. You see, you see this in Scripture. We're reconciled to Christ. But there's also a ministry of reconciliation where, where we reflect that reconciliation that we have with Christ when, in our relationships with one another. And so Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, let's just acknowledge, although it's not always possible, often reconciliation must occur prior to choosing to trust others who have hurt us. But, but reconciliation requires at least three key ingredients, which are all rooted in the gospel. So here they are. Gospel-rooted repentance. Talked briefly about this, but you, you must look inward to see your own sin and to repent of it. Honestly, truthfully thoroughly the second is gospel rooted forgiveness after you've asked god to search your heart and you've repented of your sins and turned to christ walk down that path led by the spirit then you must extend true lasting forgiveness toward the one who sinned against you again that's absorbing the cost and number three is to is time to soak in the gospel and this looks different in different situations. But time can be so important and an important ingredient that actually helps us 
foster healthy reconciliation. And so we've got to be patient and wait on the Lord and go to the Lord to work in our lives, in your own life, and also to be patient as God works in other people's lives. And so we, we have to acknowledge that every situation is unique, yet, yet gospel-rooted repentance, forgiveness, and time are all three key ingredients that are required for reconciliation. And so church, I understand that today I covered a lot of stuff, but I kind of just skimmed the surface of what it means to be rooted in the gospel. There is, there is so much more good news about what the gospel actually does in our lives. And, and you may have questions, because everyone's life is unique. And so we're going we're gonna to keep talking about this. But ultimately, this is why the Lord Jesus came. He lived the righteous life for you, the life that you couldn't live for yourself. He, he died the perfect sacrificial death for you, the death that you deserve to die for your own sin. And he gloriously rose to life for you to secure eternal union with Christ. That's what he's done. Jesus, he completed a work in the gospel that not only saves you for eternity, but the gospel work of Christ is sufficient. It's truly sufficient for your every day life in the relationships that you have. The, the gospel rooted in our lives is actually what equips and empowers us to live as servant leaders who follow Jesus. And so for some of you sitting here today, you're, you might be in a spot where you need to allow the roots of the gospel access to your everyday living. Because you've kind of just kept it at that prayer you've prayed years ago. And, and so for others, God is asking you even now today to surrender yourself fully to his lordship. That you'd repent from your sin, that you'd trust in Christ and you would follow him. Sold out wholeheartedly. Pick up your cross and carry it. See, God's glorious love is available to you. And, and he wants to strengthen and establish you as you're rooted in his love gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are all in this room in need of your love. Thank you for helping us to see that it's your gift of justifying love that provides our new identity and purpose for all of life. Thank you for your gift of grace that secures our hearts to be humble and honest about our sin. Thank you for your merciful love, which causes us to take a posture of grace and honor toward others, even when they hurt us. Thank you, Lord, for your enduring care that shepherds us to repent of our sin and forgive those who sin against us. Thank you, God, for your faithful goodness and trustworthiness that we can live as people of faith and trust, both toward you and others. May you, Lord Jesus, be glorified as all these wonderful truths take root in our lives because of the gospel work you've completed for us and secured in us. And it's in your marvelous name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close singing.
There is one gospel. church is one we do not walk alone we have his spirit as we press on to lead us safely home and when in glory still i will sing of this old story that rescued me praise to my savior the king of life i stand you guys go this week, be rooted deeply in the gospel to live the life that God has called you to live. And so may the God of hope, may he fill you. May he fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. 
So, so that you'd overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life each and every moment, day after day after day for all eternity. In Jesus' name.